Welcome to Scream Scene, the horror movie podcast where we watch every horror movie ever made in chronological order and then we rank them from best to worst. But that's on regular episodes. Once a month, we cover horror adjacent movies. And that is what this episode is about. My name is Sarah. And I'm Ben. Thank you for listening to us today. How are you doing, Ben? Um, I'm doing okay. I've been struggling with a cough. Mm. um for the last couple weeks and it's definitely not covid the trail of covid tests that are showing negative has followed you in from outside so yes i think we can confirm that it is not covid but it's like really aggravating to have like a cough during like covid because you're like well but is it though (laughs) sure yeah well luckily like your symptoms are fairly mild Mm -hmm. and they aren't worsening uh they just kind of been this for about a month um yeah it's really frustrating i'm hoping it's just pollen i am as well i will say but yeah everything that we've kind of like frantically google searched says not covid i am doing pretty good we've wrapped up a lot of pretty busy stuff at my day job Mm -hmm. uh and so now i just get to uh focus on another very busy project that we'll be wrapping up in september Mm. just in time for us to get busy with halloween things so right a lot lots of things on the go but it was a fairly busy time at work and we've we've wrapped that up so it's pretty nice now yeah in time for us to be super super busy moving yes moving castle scream scene uh everything's coming together (laughs) (laughs) Um, now, Ben, I think I know how I would answer this question, but would you say you are the main character or the sidekick of our duo? Oh, oh, that, that's such an unfair question to ask me, Sarah. Oh, I'm sorry. I didn't Um, mean for it to be unfair. I, I, because... Oh, I'm going to say the main character. Yeah, well, that would be the correct answer. Okay. Uh, I am the Watson to your Sherlock Holmes. Fair. I Yeah, okay, that's fair. Yeah. And I yeah, I'm kind up. of a, a know-it-all asshole. Oh, <laughs> I wouldn't say that. I bring this up because we are covering one of the many, many Sherlock Holmes movies on today's bonus episode. That's right. Uh, I gave everyone a choice on the Patreon poll at patreon.com slash podcast between The Hound of the Baskervilles... The Hound of the Baskervilles, The Hound of the Baskervilles, or The Hounds of Baskerville. Mm -hmm. And you went with The Hound of the Baskervilles. This was sort of inspired by the Basil Rathbone, Nigel Bruce, classic 1939 Hound of the Baskervilles being like a perennial runner-up in our Scream Scene Patreon bonus episode polls. So I just thought it would be like funny to make all of the choices different versions of hound of the baskervilles what's hilarious to me is that yet again the 1939 version was a runner-up because what won in a landslide was the 1959 hammer version of the hound of the baskervilles starring peter cushing and christopher lee directed by terence fisher 
Now, Christopher Lee does not play Watson, no. right? Okay. No, he does not play like a six foot eight Watson. Yeah, I mean, like he can do whatever he wants, right? <laughs> I'd see it because I know Peter Cushing plays the titular Sherlock Holmes. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. The yeah. titular Hound, as it were. <laughs> no, he doesn't play. Uh, a dog named Colonel plays the titular Hound. Um, but yeah, so the thing about these like horror adjacent bonus episodes is like depending on what the month brings us what kind of movies we end up seeing sometimes this episode takes way more work than like the regular episodes on either side and that certainly is the case here i think it's because they're audience chosen and so people go for like big movies that they really want to hear about and so here we have sherlock holmes who is a like literary phenomena like a like the first like really big kind of like franchise you could say in a way inspiring like tons of portrayals in other media like all the way to today like it's it's a lot sherlock holmes is a lot he's a big boy (laughs) um and he was created by another big boy arthur conan doyle uh, who was born 1859 and lived until 1930. That's a good run. 71 years. Yeah. Not bad. Now, Arthur Conan Doyle, there's like this neat little thing on his Wikipedia page about like what his name is because people are like, right. well, his last name's Conan Doyle. And it's like, no, his last name's Doyle. Conan is his middle name. Okay, because I I have seen it referred to like both ways like i've seen people write it as if his middle name is conan doyle like Ah, all together nope it's doyle got it um so he was born in edinburgh to irish catholic parents his father is sort of famous he was charles altamont doyle who was an illustrator and a surveyor for the government um so you know day job was illustrating like for maps, basically. Sure. But because he did, like, other artwork, he's kind of famous that way. Unfortunately, Charles was an alcoholic. And so Arthur had a bit of a rough childhood, and his parents would frequently separate due to his father's alcoholism. At age nine, Arthur was sent to the Jesuit prep school in Lancashire, and then later Stonyhurst College. Uh, and then... To continue his studies, he went all the way to the Austrian Jesuit school Stella Matutina. Now imagine, it's, you know, it's 1875. You are 16 years old and you're sent from jolly old England to Austria. Mm-hmm. So you're going to rebel a little bit. Mm. Uh, he decides to not be Catholic anymore and to be agnostic. Um, and this is when he decided upon medicine as his career. Mm-hmm. So to pursue medicine, he studied in Edinburgh from 1876 to 1881. And it's at this time that he started writing fiction and specifically some short stories. Um, His first published piece of work is The Mystery of Sasasa Valley. It's published in 1879. And it's about a uh, South African valley where there's like a demon in there. And it's like a (laughs) mystery thriller thing. Got it. Okay. Now, when he was doing these medical studies in uh, the late 1870s, Doyle studied under and worked for a man named Joseph Bell. Uh, is that name familiar to you at all? 
I feel like it should be, but all that's coming to mind right now is Alexander Graham Bell, which is a different person. Yeah, nothing to do with phones. Joseph Bell was a surgeon and lecturer at the Edinburgh University. Bell, along with another professor named Henry Littlejohn, would work with police for forensics and provide analyses of murders from a medical point of view. Mmm, CSI Edinburgh. <laughs> yeah! <laughs> um, and it's generally agreed that Bell is the inspiration for Holmes's deductive nature. After finishing his studies in Edinburgh, Doyle began working as a doctor on boats, specifically whaling vessels or expeditions. Okay, so he was a sawbones. <laughs> in this kind of ship doctor role, he traveled along everywhere from like the Russian coast all the way down to like Western Africa, and he would continue his studies during this time, eventually earning a doctor of medicine. Uh, with a dissertation on a specific type of syphilis. Um, and what I want to call to attention here is that he's a big nerd because you don't need to have a doctor of medicine in order to practice medicine. You just need to have a medical certificate and license, you know, so you went above and beyond is what I'm getting at. Right. During Doyle's time studying and uh, ship doctoring, I guess, he continued his writing on the side, but it was very sporadic because, you know, you're writing medical journals and very focused on kind of a, a nonfiction perspective on things. In 1881 and afterwards, he decided to open up his own practice, first with a friend and then to do it solo and had very few patients. Mm. To pass the time, he turned to fiction. He would write many short stories and particularly a longer piece titled A Study in Scarlet, which sold in 1887, and the publishing house that he sold it to held on to it until December when it was used in Beaton's Christmas Annual. Now, Sherlockians, I think as they like to be called, mm. um, will recognize A Study in Scarlet as the very first Sherlock Holmes novel. And indeed, it's actually the very first appearance of Sherlock Holmes whatsoever. It had moderate to kind of middling success. People were like, this is neat, but like nothing special. Though it did well enough that a, a second novel was commissioned. The novel does establish Watson, Dr. John Watson, as uh, someone who is returning from the Second Anglo-Afghan War who begins rooming with Sherlock Holmes because of like a mutual friend. A uh, friend's like, oh, I know this dude's looking for a roommate and you're just back from the Afghan war. So come stay with him. You're just but he back is from weird. <laughs> he is weird. You're just back from Afghanistan. A phrase that couldn't possibly still be relevant over a hundred years later. Listen, it's also the second Anglo-Afghan war. Yeah. It's like, oh, Western people have really... Have done some things, man. Um, but yeah, so he is warned that uh, Holmes is a bit eccentric. And indeed, he is. Um, he currently is working as a consulting detective. And Watson accompanies Holmes on a case with the Scotland Yard. And it goes from there. My favorite detail about early Holmes in A Study in Scarlet is that, like, you know, Holmes has this reputation for, like, encyclopedic knowledge 
right? He knows everything about everything. But the first novel makes it clear that he doesn't know anything about stuff that couldn't be pertinent to crime. Yeah. So like he and Watson have a conversation where it's made clear that like Holmes doesn't know that the earth orbits the sun or like what planets are or like what stars are because he doesn't care because it has nothing to do with solving crimes. Mm -hmm. Um, But anything that does have something to do with solving crimes, he knows everything about. So like I said, it was about so-so success. Um, But friends of Doyle and Bell immediately identified the inspiration. Like I said, a uh, second novel was commissioned. This would be The Sign of Four, um, and it was serialized and then published in 1890. Now, the publishing house is called Ward Lock Company, and they paid £25 and owned full rights to both novels. And Doyle was like, "Mm, that's sus. (laughs) I don't like this. So he decided not to write for them anymore and instead to turn to Holmes in short stories uh, that would be published in Strand Magazine. Yeah, so if you ever see like complete quote-unquote Holmes collections that don't have those first two novels, it's because like everything was published in the Strand or those first two novels were like on their own with these other publishers. So sometimes if you see them divvied up weird. That's that's why. That's usually how those things go. My favorite thing in those early books is like what was exotic mm-hmm. to a like 1889, 1890 like Victorian audience because like a big part of the plot of um I think it's Study in Scarlet revolves around Mormonism. That's the sign oh, that's of four. Oh, that's sign of four. Okay. I I tend to forget which is which. Um one of them also has like a pygmy murderer. That's sign um, of four. That's also well. sign of four. Okay. Well, the thing I love about it is that like the sign of four treats Mormonism as this like weird, exotic, like in the same it treats Mormonism the same way that like American literature in the 1930s treats voodoo. Like it's just <laughs> this like weird exotic cult from like a, a the the new world and nobody here in England knows anything about it. So I can just write Whatever the fuck. I mean, he actually researched quite a bit, but um, they're the bad guys in that novel. So it's like (laughs) nowadays with Mormonism being like a more like established thing that I think like more people know about and is like more mainstream in a way um, that novel can read like a little like, oh, this is weird. So Doyle is seeing some pretty good success with his literary efforts. Um, His medical efforts with his practice continues to not have a lot of success. So he's like, cool, well, I'll just stick with writing Holmes then, and quickly became stuck with this character. Uh, By 1891, which is only one year after Sign of Four, uh, he considered killing Holmes off because he was just like, I'm so bored of this character. He tried raising his prices with the Strand uh, to be like, maybe this will make them commission something else. And they were like, yeah, no, we'll keep paying you that. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And he's like, no. <laughs> they were super fucking popular. Yeah. I wonder if, I don't know if either it's just like one of those like venue is key things where like more people were reading the strand than like the earlier magazines that he published stuff in. Or if it was just the fact that like when he gets into the strand is when he starts getting the illustrations by uh Sydney Paget. But like, yeah, that shit was fucking hot. 
Hot off the presses. Okay, thank you for clarifying. It was like, you know, I read this for the articles. Kind of hot. In 1891, Doyle is like, well, my practice isn't working out very well. So let's go study ophthalmology. That's like eye diseases. Oh, okay. Um, I was was like, butterfly? But (laughs) no, that's lepidoptery. Um, So this takes him to Vienna. And so he decides to start writing some nonfiction and historical novels. He returns to London as an ophthalmologist, uh, establishes that practice, and no no work. Nobody gives a fuck. Well, I mean, like, uh, I don't know. I don't know how many people have eye diseases in London. A t- a t- Victorian London, people have every kind of disease. <laughs> I can imagine, though, people making appointments, and, like, someone comes in, and Doyle's like, what's wrong with your eyes? And the person's like... Oh, that was just a ruse to get in here to ask you when the next home story is coming out. I feel like he would have like a special lever, like uh, <laughs> like Sweeney pull, Todd. Pull in case of Holmes like... fans, and it just like is a trap door. Yeah. Um. So because his medical stuff continues to not work out, uh, he returns to Holmes. He's writing basically a short story a month. <laughs> Um, sometimes more. Uh, and that's just for Holmes as well. And so he has no time for anything else. None of his like side projects, his nonfiction. He also really enjoyed, like he had hobbies. Yeah. And he had no time for any of that shit. So in 1893, he published The Adventure of The Final Problem. And this short story introduces Professor Moriarty and concludes with Moriarty and Holmes falling to their deaths at the top of a waterfall. My favorite thing about the final problem is like, I think what people forget because we're used to like the pop culture version of Sherlock Holmes where like Professor Moriarty is his arch rival and like Moriarty's like the original supervillain. And so like people imagine that like Moriarty and Holmes like face off over and over and over again. But Moriarty was literally just introduced to be a villain like good enough to kill Holmes. And then like, also dies at the end of that story like he is just a plot device to kill holmes yeah and like don't get me wrong like the short story throughout the entire thing like holmes is dodging death left right and center from moriarty and his like web of intrigue Mm -hmm. but still people lost their minds uh people were unsubscribing to the strand calling in and being well i guess they i don't know if phones were writing in and being like how how dare you kill off sherlock holmes you should be tried for murder <laughs> i'd like to speak to your manager <laughs> <laughs> that's not the best english accent i don't know who kathy bates is but i'm gonna go all kathy bates on your ass <laughs> Letters poured in. Dogs and cats started living together. It was just absolute chaos. But Doyle finally had time for his historical novels and other short stories. Um, This is when he would write a historical novel titled The White Company, which is very well regarded. Uh, He would write short stories that were drama or supernatural or romance. Um, He wrote a historical book on the Boer War, which apparently he says that that's like the reason he got knighted in this time. 
And this is also when he developed other characters. There's a character named Professor Challenger, mm-hmm. uh, whose most famous book would be The Lost World. Yeah. Um, there's a series of short stories with a uh, French uh, guy named Brigadier Girard, who's like a comedic historical fiction kind of uh, genre story there. And he explored his interest in sports. He got into cricket, boxing, and golf. Now, like I mentioned briefly, he was knighted in 1902. He ran in Parliament. During this time, you know, his wife passed away in 1906, so that is a bit of an upheaval. He remarries in 1907. And during this time that Holmes is dead, Doyle deepened his involvement in spiritualism. Mm-hmm. Um, in oh, quackery. Yeah, yeah. Did I did I me- not mention? Um, he believed spirits, psychics, etc. were real. Yes. And was often bamboozled because of it. An example of his activities in spiritualism, in 1889, he was a founding member of the Hampshire Society for Psychical Research. Uh, in 1894, he uh, participated in the search for poltergeists. Uh, he became a Freemason for the second time in 1902. Because he was a member, and then he left, uh, and then became a member, and then he leaves later on as well. Got it. You but, guys just don't live up to your um, reputation he, as being like a weird cult that controls the world. You're just a bunch of like stonemason geeks. I, sorry. I, I mean, he did have an interest in architecture, so mm, I kind of had okay. canon like he joined because he was into architecture, and then was like, this doesn't really seem to be about architecture. And so he left, and then he was like, but actually, though, that cultness, though, <laughs> let me Sir come Arthur, back. is that a Freemason pamphlet? I read it for the architecture. <laughs> but people kept calling for Holmes. Now, Doyle was working on this new novel about a spooky gothic house that's kind of like a creeper tale in the style of Sheridan Le Fanu. Uh, and I, I guess I could put Holmes in that. To get you guys off my back? Enter The Hound of the Baskervilles, the third Holmes novel and the first appearance since Holmes died nine years prior. Um, however, this novel is set before The Final Problem. Yeah, it's it's a prequel. It's set back in 1889. Mm-hmm. Ben? Sir Charles Baskerville has been found dead. My God. My word. His friend, Dr. James Mortimer, calls on Holmes to investigate. Now, Sir Charles uh, appears to have died of a heart attack. Or is it fright? Mm. Um, He has a look of horror on his face, though he clearly, you know, still had that heart attack. And there's these mysterious footprints of a, a large hound nearby. There is this old legend or curse, if you will, that haunts the Baskerville family. Uh, it started when, years ago during the English Civil War, Hugo Baskerville kidnapped and killed a local girl yep. out on the moors. Mm-hmm. And then he himself was killed by a huge, ghostly, demonic hound. And I think it's like key to note here that like Big Black Dog is yes. like a, a an iconic like English countryside like ghost thing. Like... Like, they don't have Sasquatch. They have, like, a big black dog, basically. Now, this hound still haunts the moors surrounding the Baskerville Manor um, and is 
people claim that it's this hound that is responsible for killing multiple heirs over the years. Next in line is Sir Henry Baskerville, and he's arriving from Canada. (laughs) How exotic. (laughs) Now, once he arrives, he gets a mysterious note that's like, beware the moors and the hound. Um, And it also seems like someone's stalking him at night. So Holmes believes that Henry's life is in danger. He has Watson trailing him. And then there's also, for no good reason, an escaped convict down on the moors. Um, You always got to have an escaped convict to be like a red herring. Absolutely. There's also the Grimpen Mire nearby on the moors. Uh, This is basically a swamp that has like English quicksand. It's not actually quicksand, but it might as well be. Now, there are a few suspects, spooky knights, um, and, as you said, red herrings and twists and turns. But eventually, we learn that the neighbors, the Stapletons, and specifically Jack Stapleton, uh, turn out to have a big black dog, a big black hound, that is attacking the Baskervilles because Jack Stapleton is, like, wanting to get the Baskervilles killed. Turns out... The Stapletons are long-lost descendants, and Jack wants his inheritance. Now, the evidence that they collect, Holmes and Watson, that is, uh, isn't enough to hold Jack Stapleton. So, Holmes tricks Jack into releasing the hound uh, one night when, like, Holmes and Watson and uh, Inspector Lestrade is nearby, um, and... (laughs) Holmes and Watson end up killing the dog uh, while Jack tries to escape across the moors um, but is headed in the direction of that quicksand swamp so he's presumed dead. And that's the novel. The detail I always remember about the novel is that like to make the hound look spooky they like paint its teeth or paws or something with like iridescent paint. Um, you know, like you would use to make your watch like glow in the dark, which means like that dog would have been Holmes didn't need to shoot that dog. That dog would have been dead uh, fairly shortly anyways, because that paint has radium in it. Radium famous for being radioactive. Right. Um, now, you've read Hound of the Baskervilles, right? Yes. Can you remember like when it was you first read it? 2009, 2010. OK, so like during university, somewhere in there. Yeah. Um. So my grandfather was a big fan of Sherlock Holmes. Um, So I got him the complete illustrated Sherlock Holmes for Christmas one year when I was 13. Um, So that has all the Sydney Paget illustrated stuff, which includes Hound of the Baskervilles. Um, I first read Hound of the Baskervilles like as a teen around that time. And then I read it again in university because I took a course on mystery fiction Um, But my first exposure to it as a story was on the Canadian television series Wishbone, Uh, which did a Hound of the Baskervilles episode. Wishbone, if American listeners don't know, was a series about a beagle that loved classic public domain literature and would like read books and be the hero in them. So it would be like this little beagle in like a little like Inverness cape and deerstalker cap going around being Holmes in Hound of the Baskervilles. Um, and usually the book would like tie into some like frame story about some problem that like his kid owner was having that week or something. Yeah. So that was my first run in with Hound of the Baskervilles. That was also my first run in with Jekyll and Hyde. I think it was oh, through funny. Wishbone. 
Uh, I have a very strong memory of the Wishbone adaptation of that story where it's like the guy who has the big long Cyrano beard. de Bergerac. Yeah, I remember that episode. There was also... No, a- Cyr- Cyrano de Bergerac? Cyrano de Bergerac is the guy with the big nose. Yeah, he said big long beard. Oh, big long beard. Rip Van Winkle. Yeah. Sorry. I knew it wasn't Cyrano. Like, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Sorry, Rip Van Winkle. He did, listen, he did, he did all lot. that shit. Yeah. Uh, Wishbone's sure. great. Yeah. Rip Wishbone, because he is not <laughs> alive still. No, absolutely not. That was like 20 years ago. So, Hound of the Baskervilles. Huge success, both for contemporary and modern reviews. It's considered the best of the four Sherlock novels, and it's been adapted so many times. Yeah, it's not my favorite home story, but of the four novels, it is definitely the best one. I do love that, like, Hound of the Baskervilles basically is the prototype for every Scooby-Doo yeah, episode. That's absolutely it. Um, And it was written by a dude who, like, hated the-, the character. Well, yes, hated the character of Sherlock Holmes, but also was like the easiest to hoodwink with a Scooby-Doo style scam. Like you'd be like, Conan Doyle, my house is haunted. And Conan Doyle would be like, well, I'm going to empirically prove it so that we can prove ghosts are real. And he goes into the house and you'd be standing like a foot behind Conan Doyle and you'd whisper into his ear like, ooh. And Conan Doyle would be like, aha, ghosts proven again. (laughs) Totally real. So I believe the first film adaptation of the Baskervilles uh, came in 1914. Yeah. So Hound of the Baskervilles has been adapted a lot of different times for film. Um, And Sherlock Holmes in general, it is estimated, is the most prolific character in cinema, period. There are just... Tons and tons and tons of Sherlock Holmes movies, especially from like the pre-sound era when you could just like crank shit out. Um, <laughs> a lot of the early ones are are missing. Is that a pun because they had to crank the camera? No, I didn't mean it, but it's a good one. The earliest known Sherlock Holmes film is a 30-second mutoscope comedy called Sherlock Holmes Baffled where someone's trying to burgle Sherlock Holmes and Sherlock Holmes keeps trying to catch him and fails. The first known serious attempt was Adventures of Sherlock Holmes in 1905, an American film starring H. Kirl Bellew as Holmes. Uh, in those days of silent short films, it was very easy to like just crank out a series of films that would have international appeal because they're silent. Um, so Georges Treville produced, directed, and starred in a series of eight two-reeler films in 1912 and 1913. And then in 1914, there was a five-reel German adaptation of The Hound of the Baskervilles, starring Alvin Nice, which spawned five sequels. A British adaptation of A Study in Scarlet in 1914 saw James Braggington become the (laughs) first English actor to portray Holmes. And boy, did he not let anyone forget that. (laughs) While a U.S. adaptation of the same book that same year saw Francis Ford play Sherlock Holmes with his younger brother, John Ford, playing Watson. The same John Ford who would go on to become an icon of the Western genre, directing films like Stagecoach and The Searchers. In 1916, uh, the 
Producers of the UK study in Scarlet made a sequel based on the Valley of Fear starring Harry Arthur Saintsbury. However, the first like really significant screen adaptation of Sherlock Holmes was 1916's Sherlock Holmes, a feature film running 116 minutes. And to understand why this adaptation is significant, we kind of have to go back in time a little bit. So the 1916 adaptation starred William Gillette and was based on his extremely famous and popular Sherlock Holmes stage play, which was in turn kind of a mashup of elements from A Study in Scarlet and A Scandal in Bohemia and The Sign of Four and The Final Problem. William Gillette was an American actor-manager in the style of the time, so he was both like the lead actor, he directed the play, he wrote the play, he managed the uh company of actors performing in it and he stage managed the production um this was really common at the time and it was a way for lead actors to just sort of maximize revenue shall we say um before being sherlock holmes william gillette was notable for his use of like special effects and lighting and sound to create realism on stage gillette's holmes play uh debuted in 1899 when gillette was 46 years old key to this is that the play came out while Holmes was still dead. Mm -hmm. Uh, I guess Conan Doyle like sold rights to Gillette to do the Holmes stage play, thinking that it would like sate the public's appetite for the character so that he could just keep not writing Sherlock Holmes. Yeah, that sounds about right. And Gillette's Holmes adaptation canonized many elements of the character that have now become like cliche for the character. So, for instance, uh, Gillette wore a deerstalker cap and Inverness cape as his costume on stage, which Holmes only does in the adventures that take place outside of London, like Hound of the Baskervilles, because a deerstalker cap and an Inverness cape are like rural countryside clothes. They would not be appropriate for wearing in the city in London, where most of the Holmes stories take place um so most of the time Holmes should be in like a you know an overcoat and a top hat kind of look Gillette also changed Holmes hitherto straight pipe to a like curved briar pipe that came way out from his face um, because it was easier to talk with that in his teeth and also it prevented um the pipe from blocking his face for sight lines He incorporated a magnifying glass into his props for looking for clues, and he used the line, elementary, my dear fellow, uh, which would later on become elementary, my dear Watson, which any Holmes fan will tell you Holmes never says in any of Conan Doyle's stories. Gillette played Holmes 1,300 times from 1899 to 1902. Wow. After the play's run was over, um, the American magazine that carried Holmes, which I think was Collier's, started using Gillette as the basis for their illustrations, whereas like Sidney Paget continued to draw Holmes the way he always had for The Strand back in the UK. And the success of the play, which toured the US and the UK, basically ended up forcing Conan Doyle's hand, uh, and he had to bring Holmes back in 1904 with the story The Empty House, where, like, he has a convoluted explanation for how he survived falling over that waterfall. And it was planned. You know, he has so many enemies. He has to 
you know, fake his death to get everyone off his back. Yeah, he had to lay low for a while. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so even though by 1916, Gillette was 63 years old, it was still a pretty big deal for his version of the character to be adapted for the screen. The film was considered lost for many years. It was rediscovered in 2014 and is available on Blu-ray from Flickr Alley. From 1921 to 1923, Stoll Pictures produced a series of 45 short films and two feature films. The shorts naturally adapted the short stories, while the features adapted two of the novels, uh, Hound of the Baskervilles in 1921 and The Sign of Four in 1923. With Sign of Four adaptations, by the way, it often... So, for some reason, nobody fucking ever adapts the stories in order, so, like, no one starts with Study in Scarlet. They start with Hound of the Baskervilles because, like, that's the famous one. That's the moneymaker. And then they'll, like, loop back around and do other ones. And what often ends up happening is they'll cast, like, a middle-aged portly man to play Watson for whatever the first one they do is. And then when they get around to Sign of Four, they realize that that's the one where Watson meets Mary Marston, who he ends up marrying. And it has this romantic subplot because it's, like, the second novel when they were younger characters. And so they usually end up recasting watson with like a younger more dashingly handsome man for like that entry so that the romantic plot works which is anyways these stole pictures versions starred ellie norwood as holmes whose performance was praised by conan doyle himself because as you pointed out conan doyle lived into the 1930s so he saw a lot of these adaptations the next major screen version of the character uh was not one that conan doyle was a fan of uh, but was yet another adaptation of gillette's play um, and this was rewritten a bit to tailor it for the 40-year-old screen idol John Barrymore, who plays Sherlock Holmes in this 1922 origin story from Goldwyn Pictures, which depicts Holmes as a like college student falling in love who nabs Moriarty at the end and sends him to jail. <laughs> Typical Americans. Right. Another German version of The Hound of the Baskervilles came out in 1929. So the Germans just love Hound of the Baskervilles, which with the gothic thing. Yeah. Um, and that was the final Holmes picture of the silent era. The first sound Sherlock Holmes picture was 1929's The Return of Sherlock Holmes from Paramount, starring Clive Brooks, wherein Holmes first utters the line, Elementary, my dear Watson. Then, in an example of frustrating titling that would do Rambo proud, Brooks's next appearance as Sherlock Holmes was in Sherlock Holmes in 1932 from Fox, yet another adaptation of the Gillette play. So basically, we're either doing William Gillette or we're doing Hound of the Baskervilles mm. with these movies most often. Then, beginning with The Sleeping Cardinal in 1931, Arthur Wantner played Holmes in a series of five films until 1937, playing the character from age 50 to 62. I point this out because Holmes in Conan Doyle's stories like retires around age 50. So I'm just pointing it out when these oldsters are playing them. <laughs> these oldsters. Yeah, I will say uh, there is a U.S. radio show going on in this time. Um it ran 1930 to 35, uh, and it was titled Adventures of Sherlock Holmes. Um, they adapted Hound of the Baskerville specifically in 1932, and this had Richard Gordon as Holmes and Lee Lavelle as Watson. 
The third sound Sherlock was Raymond Massey, uh, who you'll remember as the replacement for Boris Karloff in the movie version of Arsenic and Old Lace. Oh, yeah. Uh, in his first film role in The Speckled Band in 1931. And one thing I'll point out about all of these adaptations is that they all were set in contemporary times. Which makes sense when you remember that, like, the home stories came back in 1904 and, like, the first Holmes movies were in, like, 1900. So, like, at first, we just, like, weren't that far away from the Victorian period. It Like, home stories were originally set when they were coming out. They were contemporary. It made sense for it to be contemporary. And then we just sort of got, like, you know, farther and farther from the Victorian period because that's how time works and it started to become like weirder and weirder for Holmes to be in a world with like telephones and cars um 1932 saw yet another hound of the baskervilles adaptation notable for having a script by edgar wallace uh who wrote like chamber of fear um and like uh the door with seven locks okay uh, horror of london that stuff uh but otherwise that movie's poorly regarded robert flory of um Murder in the Rue Morgue fame, wrote A Study in Scarlet in 1933 for Fox, which starred Reginald Owen as Holmes, who had played Watson in Fox's Sherlock Holmes movie the previous year. 1937 saw yet another German adaptation of Hound of the Baskervilles. And that finally brings us to the next, like, big, major Holmes film adaptation, which is 1939's The Hound of the Baskervilles, with uh, Basil Rathbone as Sherlock Holmes and Nigel Bruce as Watson. This film was produced by 20th Century Fox and also features Lionel Atwill and John Carradine in supporting Hmm. roles. It was the first Holmes picture to be a period film set back in Victorian times um, because it was now, you know, nearly 40 years since Hound of the Baskervilles uh, had been written. The film was a huge mm-hmm. hit, uh, with Rathbone earning praise as the definitive screen Holmes, and this version considered to be one of the best adaptations of the novel, even to this day. Like, we're pretty far out from 1939 now, and you still hear, like, oh yeah, Basil Rathbone is the cinematic Sherlock Holmes, just kind of said as, like, a point of fact. I think a big part of that is like not to take away from the film's power, but it did catapult Basil Rathbone and Nigel Bruce into doing a Sherlock Holmes radio show. Yeah. So what ended up happening was Fox quickly followed Hound of the Baskervilles with a sequel, The Adventures of Sherlock Holmes, which had George Zuko as Moriarty. But following this, 20th Century Fox chose to discontinue the productions with Rathbone and Bruce because they felt that like they were no longer timely uh, for a World War II era audience or like there was also maybe a dispute with the Conan Doyle estate. There's like varying conflicting stories. And then, yeah, we we got this this radio show. Yeah, what's kind of neat about this is that um, that earlier 1930 to 35 Sherlock Holmes radio show had um, a head writer named Edith Miser and she oversaw the this new show called The New Adventures of Sherlock Holmes. Um, she was involved from 1939 at start to 1943 and then left due to creative differences over violence. A sponsor was like, 
this is too violent. And she was like, fuck you and left. <laughs> Damn. <laughs> but the show itself continued until 1950. Basil Rathbone played Holmes until 1946 and Nigel Bruce played Watson until 1947. Damn. Yeah. I think um, because of that radio show, that's where they pulled the audio of Holmes and Watson for the, the great scene. mouse detective. Yeah, the yeah. scene at the end of the great mouse detective. Yeah. So um, that radio show was, of course, very popular because um, it was the 40s. And it was Universal who sort of picked up the baton here. Uh, they brought Rathbone and Bruce aboard for a continuing series of Holmes movies, which would now be B movies instead of like the A pictures. They were mm. at Fox and would also now be set in the present day so that Holmes could fight Nazis. Yeah. Um, and Match. Yeah. The change in era um, is explained on a title card on the first Universal picture, uh, which says that Holmes is ageless, invincible, and unchanging. The implications there, <laughs> Universal. Yeah. My God. Presumably we can have Sherlock Holmes adventures in like Shakespearean times or Roman times because Sherlock Holmes is just always there. <laughs> Like Keanu Reeves, he's immortal right. and unchanging. So Universal made 12 Rathbone Bruce Holmes pictures from 1942 to 1946, uh, meaning they had a total of 14 film appearances as the characters, a body of work that, along with the radio show, more or less cemented them as the pop culture memory of those characters. Uh, much to the chagrin of some Sherlockian purists uh, who did not and do not take well to Nigel Bruce's version of Watson, who is kind of portrayed as like a doddering simpleton, um, despite the fact that, you know, Watson's supposed to be this like ex-soldier military doctor type. It's supposed to be, you know, Watson is like a smart guy and Holmes is like a ludicrous super genius. It's just really hard to write ludicrous super geniuses so the like lazy way out of that is to make watson an idiot so that holmes seems like fucking brilliant by comparison i always really liked jude law's portrayal of watson hmm. i thought he did a really good job and that the writing of that watson was really good yeah i'd agree with that so um these rathbone bruce films loomed so large in the public imagination that it was like some time before another challenger to the throne <laughs> would emerge. Uh, 1951 saw six episodes of Holmes adaptations on the BBC. That would make sense because they started up a radio series mm. in 1952. Mm. And 1954 saw a 39 episode series done for syndication in the United States. This series sought to portray the younger Holmes of the earlier stories rather than the kind of like fallen into the formula pop culture version of the later stories um, and also um, sought to have Watson portrayed as a competent young medical doctor, um, which is sort of like a recurring refrain after the Nigel Bruce version is like people being like, well, I'm not going to be like Nigel Bruce. And yet... The Nigel Bruce version is still like what people remember. Um, that television series was generally very well regarded, but you know, um, you can get it on DVD, which surprised me because TV shows of that era are sometimes hard to uh, get a hold of. Mm -hmm. But Holmes had stayed off the silver screen since 1946, 
when Hammer decided to produce their Hound of the Baskervilles in 1959. Yeah, that's kind of interesting to me because um like i said the bbc was doing their radio series and they adapted hound of the baskervilles in 1958 on that radio series oh interesting had like a six episode arc okay there so i think that might be part of it um because hammer and the bbc yeah yeah have a very symbiotic relationship exactly as far as like stage adaptations of hound of the baskervilles there's only uh the very first one was a very recent adaptation in 2007 um as you said many stage adaptations of sherlock holmes and his other adventures but for baskerville specifically it's 2007 i guess it's like hard to do like the moors and the dog and stuff like that on stage like that's that's kind of hard to do only if you're a coward <laughs> <laughs> So, as you said, um, between the novel being a success, these films being a success, Doyle relented and brought Holmes back to life with the 1903 short story, The Adventure of the Empty House. Um, In total, Doyle wrote four novels and 56 short stories featuring Sherlock Holmes, with his last Holmes short story being written and published in 1927. Doyle would pass away three years later in 1930 at age 71 from a heart attack. Holmes, as a character, would continue in stories and as a character in other original work, as we've pointed out even in just these adaptations, but in other short stories as well. People kind of took up the pen and uh, the burden of Holmes Mm. and continued writing. Doyle himself was even brought into... I guess you could say brought into fiction um, and being portrayed in, yeah. I thought you were going to say that Doyle was brought back from beyond the grave via seance to write home stories, but okay. I'm okay. sure he would have believed that that was possible. <laughs> he would have fucking hated that. <laughs> he would have been like, this is my Sisyphean task. Yeah, exactly. Um, yeah, so he was brought into um, some film and TV Uh, And I thought it was interesting to point out with this one portrayal. Uh, So I didn't mention this, but Doyle and um, Houdini. Yeah, we're buds. For a time, Houdini was like, don't worry, Doyle. These are all illusions. And Doyle was like, but where's the magic, though? And that ended up breaking their friendship. Yeah, because like Houdini would show him over and over like these are trick locks. These are trick uh handcuffs like here's how i get out of the straight jacket like it's all like illusion and sleight of hand and Doyle would be like no no you you, that's the shit you tell the 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 people you're conning no what's the real magic yeah um exhausting and so uh peter cushing portrayed arthur conan doyle in the 1976 television film the great houdini oh neat uh and i thought that was just like a yeah a little neat little neat thing yeah little trivial pursuit answer for you yeah no kidding yeah absolutely we don't really need to talk about like the influence of sherlock holmes i mean we already kind of said like hound of the baskervilles is the prototype for every scooby-doo thing um and i feel like sherlock holmes is to detective fiction what like J.R. tolkien is to fantasy fiction where like you're either doing a version of holmes or you're not doing a version of Holmes, but if you're not doing a version of Holmes, that's because you've already made the choice 
not to do a version of Holmes. Like either way, he's influencing what you're doing. Yeah. Like what's fun with Sherlock Holmes is, uh, in his first appearance, uh, study in Scarlet Watson's like, Oh, so you're kind of like, uh, these fictional detectives like, uh, Edgar Allan Poe's see Auguste Dupont or, um, Emile Gabriel's Monsieur Lecoq. And Sherlock's like, no, those are rubes. <laughs> those are fools. Not like my genius. Um, and I think that's just something interesting to point out that like, uh, yes, those are famous detectives, but Sherlock Holmes perfected that formula of yeah. the all knowing deductive method of solving a crime and not being a police officer while doing it. Um, so yes, those characters notable, but Sherlock Holmes has absolutely overshadowed it completely. Yeah, absolutely. And like, there really wasn't like, as I said, you were either doing a version of Sherlock Holmes or you were parodying Sherlock Holmes or you were trying to purposely do something different from Sherlock Holmes for years. There really wasn't like a different detective archetype until you get to like American hard boiled fiction where you have detectives who solve the mystery, not by deducting anything, but by fists fists and being able to like take a punch really well. Yeah. And you know, their, their guts and, and things like that. The other thing that is like, I, I love this like quagmire with Sherlock Holmes is like the rights where I think by all weights and measures, Sherlock Holmes is a public domain character, but the Conan Doyle estate will like insist to you that they own the rights. And so because there they are... still have the rights to some of the later stories yeah. that aren't yet in the public domain. Yeah. Cause of the way that like public domain kind of works over time. Yeah. My favorite thing about this is like, so there are some Sherlock Holmes stuff that's approved by Conan Doyle and there's other stuff that isn't um, because some people like aren't afraid of no lawsuits and just go off and do things, which I have to assume is how we end up with like cartoons like Sherlock Holmes in the 22nd century and things like that. But um, other times people like take it seriously, like Paramount they had that Moriarty episode of Star Trek Next Generation, which is in like season two. And then Moriarty doesn't show up again until season six because the season two episode not approved by Conan Doyle because Paramount was like, eh, it's public domain. And then Conan Doyle's estate was like, but we're going to sue you anyway to basically vent our anger that you didn't ask us for permission. And so it took like years for that to get cleared up. And that's why Moriarty doesn't show up again until like season six. Yeah. Even in the Netflix film Enola Holmes, um, the the estate took Netflix to court because uh, Henry Cavill's Sherlock Holmes looks like has nothing really in common with Sherlock Holmes himself. Yeah, but he portrayed you know a couple aspects that are only part of Sherlock Holmes's personality in the stories that the state still has the rights to. So therefore you need to pay us money. The argument was that Henry Cavill's Sherlock Holmes has emotions and the character of Sherlock Holmes did not develop emotions until the later stories. When he got his emotion ship. Right. Course. Yeah, exactly. Which um, is patently, patently untrue. Uh, that's just some nonsense. But yeah, I, I fucking love that shit. So yeah, to talk about the 1959 Sherlock Holmes, uh, Hound of the Baskervilles, um, from Hammer. Uh, yeah, I think you're probably right on the money with the like BBC doing a 1958 version and Hammer being like, well, yeah, that seems like a good idea. 
The idea for Hammer to do an adaptation of Hound of the Baskervilles came from producer Kenneth Hyman, who would go on to produce Whatever Happened to Baby Jane and The Dirty Dozen uh, later in the 1960s. Yeah. Um, The idea was for Hound of the Baskervilles to serve as the first in a series of Holmes pictures that Hammer would make. The success of Hammer's Frankenstein and Dracula films, I think, also was an influence in choosing Baskervilles to be the first one because... It's definitely the most gothic. Yeah, you can play up the horror elements in the story, right? Like, ooh, spooky monster dog on the moors. Like, the poster for this version is just, like, this demonic dog head snarling. Um, Like, no, like, Holmes, nowhere to be found. Fun fact about, like, a lot of the earlier adaptations of Hound of the Baskervilles, by the way, including the Basil Rathbone one, is that a lot of times the actor playing Henry Baskerville got top billing over Holmes because he was seen as like the romantic lead because he has a love interest. (laughs) Yeah, sure. Uh, I do think Hound of the Baskervilles is the only Basil Rathbone Holmes where Basil Rathbone is not top billed. Mm. Well, you see, that's because there is a love story for Holmes. It's with the clues, Ben. Yes. He's like, just like over there making out with the like footprint of the dog. Like, oh, clues. Oh, okay. I'm so sorry. (laughs) Fresh off of The Revenge of Frankenstein, uh, Terrence Fisher was brought in to direct, Jack Asher to direct the photography, and James Bernard to write the score. So like compared to where we are in the regular show, this is literally the next Hammer movie. Oh. Yeah. So we're actually coming on this like chronologically approximately correctly. Christopher Lee was cast as Sir Henry Baskerville. And then, of course, as we've said, Peter Cushing as Sherlock Holmes. Cushing was ecstatic to play Holmes. He had been an enormous fan of the stories his entire life. Uh, He reread all of the novels in preparation for the role. Uh, He studied all of the like and when i say all the novels i'm including um the short story collections in there as well uh he studied them and made notes all throughout them and the script uh he brought in his own costumes to match <laughs> the sydney paget <laughs> illustrations for hound of the baskervilles oh, i love peter cushing so much he rewrote the script so that any lines of holmes in the script that were not from the original novel like you know because you have to adapt things and and patch over stuff um were replaced by lines that had the same meaning from other Holmes stories wow so, like, you know, instead of Holmes saying something like... Um, Pass the potatoes. Right. Or, or like, <laughs> there's a bit where he he's supposed to, in the original script, like, ask about how much they're willing to pay him. And Cushing replaced it with a line from one of the Holmes stories by Conan Doyle about, like, how Holmes' pay is set. And it's the same every time. And you just, you pay him that and that's it. There's no question. Unless he is, like, doing it for free. And so... Nothing Holmes says in the movie is not something Conan Doyle wrote. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Double negative there. Uh, Everything Sherlock says in this movie is something that Doyle wrote. Right. Even if it's not from Hound of the Baskervilles. Hammer instructed screenwriter Peter Bryan to play up the horror elements in the story. Uh, But Cushing had like no problem with any changes 
to the story so long as the character of Holmes was intact. <laughs> Cushing brought in his own props to ensure that the depiction of Holmes's rooms matched the stories, uh, including details like Holmes's correspondence being fixed to the mantelpiece with a jackknife. Cushing considered his performance as Holmes in this movie to be one of the finest accomplishments of his acting career. Christopher Lee has uh, admitted to being transfixed uh, with awe while watching Cushing in this movie act, uh, particularly his ability to incorporate so many props into his action. (laughs) I feel like they have a really good friendship. Yeah, I think so too. Uh, To create the titular hound, the filmmakers created a mask from rabbit fur to fit over a real dog uh, named Colonel, who ended up being kind of like reluctant to attack Christopher Lee. Um, So they ended up having to like prod the dog, which resulted in the dog biting through Christopher Lee's arm. Oh my God. Yeah. In another scene, a tarantula walks on Lee, whose terrified facial expression comes from the fact that he has a real-life arachnophobia. My boy. (laughs) Andre Morel, who plays Watson in this film, was born Cecil Andre Mesritz in 1909 in London, and he'd been acting with the Old Vic since 1938. He had previously appeared opposite Cushing in the 1954 BBC adaptation of 1984, playing O'Brien to Cushing's Winston. In 1958, he appeared in Quatermass and the Pit, uh, the third BBC Quatermass series, playing Quatermass. Uh, He had been actually offered the part in the original series and turned it down. And then the original Quatermass actor had died before Quatermass 2 could be made. And then Nigel Neal didn't like the actor who played him in Quatermass 2. And so Morell got it for Quatermass in the Pit. And of course, then there was the uh, American actor, Brian Donlevy, who played him in the movies who Nigel Neal also didn't like. Um, Morell's version of the character is often said to be like the fan favorite version of Quatermass. For his performance as Watson, Morell tried to go for the more competent Watson of the original stories, and he passed away of lung cancer after a long career in 1978. The Hound of the Baskervilles was released on May 4th, 1959, distributed by United Artists. It was a hit with critics who praised Cushing's performance and the film's atmosphere. It is considered one of the best Sherlock Holmes movies, as well as one of the best movies Hammer ever made. Oh, Unfortunately, it did not do well at the box office, with audiences signaling a strong preference for Hammer to stick to straight horror, and so the promised series of Holmes films for Cushing never materialized. I mean, that's fair, because this is horror-adjacent, right? But Mm -hmm. if someone's going to the movie theater expecting horror, they're going to be very disappointed. Yeah. Um, Cushing did, however, get to reprise the role of Sherlock Holmes on BBC television for a 16-episode series in 1968, which frustratingly includes a two-part adaptation of Hound of the Baskervilles, um, which is frustrating to me because it's like you only have 16 episodes and two of them are going to be of a story he already did. Like, I want to see him in more other different stories, right? Yeah, but that's also nearly 10 years later, right? So Yeah, that's fair, but like... It's also one of those things where like BBC shows like have missing episodes because the BBC didn't keep tapes. And so it's like, I think we have like six episodes of the 
16 and two of the six we have are the Hound of the Baskervilles episodes. So you're just salty. Yes, exactly. Um, and then in 1984, Cushing played an elderly Holmes in The Mask of Death, which was written by former Hammer producer Anthony Hines. Cool. So how are we watching the 1959 Hound of the Baskervilles? Well, the Hound of the Baskervilles is available to stream on Tubi and to rent on iTunes, Google Play, YouTube, and Amazon. It is available on DVD from Kino Lorber and on Blu-ray from Twilight Time. Twilight Time? I haven't heard that before. Yeah, they're like a new uh, DVD label. I think fairly new, maybe. Yeah. Cool. Well, folks, hopefully you can find a copy to watch along. Um, I mean, like to be super easy. And I I hope you've enjoyed this uh, long preamble to The Hand of the Baskervilles. Um, You're going to hear a brief musical interlude. And when we come back, we will discuss The Hand of the Baskervilles from 1959, directed by Terrence Fisher. See you on the other side, everybody. Welcome back, everybody. We just finished watching The Hound of the Baskervilles from 1959, directed by Terrence Fisher. Sarah, what did you think? This was really good. Yeah. This was really good. Yeah, it's a lot of fun. Yeah, it's uh, very well done. It's a great example of the uh, colored gothic that Hammer is known for, especially in these early films. Yeah. This is a great movie, and the reason it bombed is because of the bait and switch. Yeah, for sure. Um, I think I even forgot to maybe mention this in the context setting, um, but this was the first Sherlock Holmes movie in color. Oh, that's neat. Yeah, like I think it was like implied in the context setting because there hasn't been a Sherlock movie since 1946 when Universal was doing them as B movies, but like I forgot to explicitly state it. So yes, this is the first color Sherlock Holmes movie. Lots of, um, like, rich earth tones in yes. this movie. I mean, it's the Moors, Ben. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I appreciate you specifying uh, the first color Holmes movie, Mm-mm. because otherwise I would have been like, so were the plays in monochrome? Like, what, <laughs> what is, what are we, what's going on here? Is this a Pleasantville situation? Um, cool. Well, why don't I give kind of the rundown? Yeah, I think it's pretty similar to the book, but it's a they've they've sort of um, you know, as normally you do when you adapt a book, they they've condensed things a little. Condensed, they've changed a couple of different things, and uh, yeah, I think they they did a really good job adapting this to screen. But here we go. We open with the legend of the Hound of the Baskervilles being told to us, and we see it on screen, including Sir Hugo. Baskerville uh, being a, a, a real cad, just a real big dick. Um, he's bullying a servant of his, and the servant, uh, the reason he's being bullied is because he protested Hugo's advances on uh, the servant's daughter. And actually, Hugo ends up killing the servant. Uh, and then uh, the girl in question, the daughter, uh, is being like locked upstairs and she escapes. So Hugo hunts her down with his hunting hounds 
keep in mind, this is also during like a raucous party with his friends. Yeah. And everyone's condoning this behavior. Mm-hmm. You could think of him as like, you know, his strong Gaston energy, mm. but worse. Mm-hmm. So he's hunting down the girl across the moors. And before he like takes off, he, he calls to his friends that like, you know, a catcher or the devil himself would stop me or something along those lines. And while he catches up with the girl at this uh, old decrepit abbey ruins and stabs her. Just stabs her fully to death. And then we hear the haunting howls of a hound and it uh, kind of attacks Hugo and, and mauls him to death. And this is when we cut to present day uh, and we see that the legend is being retold by Dr. Mortimer at Sherlock Holmes and Dr. Watson's flat. Uh, yes, uh, with present day meaning 1889, of course. Yes. Uh, So Mortimer is here to ask for Holmes and Watson to protect the new heir, Sir Henry Baskerville, who is coming from South Africa, uh, not Canada. So, you know, I'm going to hold that against Hammer a little Mm. bit because Mortimer believes that Sir Henry is, you know, in danger because uh, Sir Charles has just died from the Hound. It's heavily implied. Yes, implied uh, like... It's implied that Sir Charles died of fright. Yes, because they have a weak heart that's passed down the Baskerville line. By and large, the film is kind of the same as what happens in the novel, being kind of roundabout uh, with like the mystery with some minor changes. I've pointed out South Africa. Just like in the novel, Watson heads to Baskerville Hall with Henry uh, with like strict instructions from Holmes to not let Baskerville leave his sight or go across the moors alone. There is an escaped convict. There's a missing portrait of Sir Hugo. There is the inherited ailment of the heart. We get some excitement when Holmes appears dramatically and the convict dies uh, because he had been wearing uh, Sir Henry's clothes given to him by uh, his sister, who is one of Baskerville's servants. And of course, we have the neighbors Stapleton. Um, so in the novel, it's a brother and sister. In this film, it is a guy and his daughter, Cecile. There is that uh, love interest between the daughter and Henry, but it's all a ruse because she just lures Henry out to the moors to the Abbey ruins where Mr. Stapleton releases a starved dog and sticks him on to Henry. Um, Now, this is uh, all stopped by Holmes and Watson. Uh, Cecile runs off because uh, her father gets mauled by the dog instead. So she runs off to the moors um, and falls victim to English quicksand in the nearby Grimpen Mire Swamp. So that's that's the movie. Is there anything that I kind of glossed over? I think like for the most part, it's very similar to the book. Um, you kind of hit the main things that are different. So they cast yeah. an Italian model to play Cecile. So so in the book, her name is like, I want to say it's like Beryl or something like that. Something like that. I and, don't recall off the top um, of my yeah, head. Yeah, and, and the deal is that she's actually Stapleton's wife, but they were pretending to be brother and sister so that she would lure Sir Henry into the trap 
and here it's it's she Stapleton's daughter from and Spain. Yes, her mother was Spanish, and that's I guess to cover for the fact that the Italian supermodel that they hired to play her uh, has a very thick Italian accent. And Italian is just like Spanish, so... I mean, it's more like Spanish than English, so... (laughs) And uh, one thing that I I glossed over is one of the first attempts on Sir Henry's life is a tarantula crawling out of his boot. Uh, And later when this is explained and, like, kind of gone over, like, what's with the tarantula? How did they know it wasn't just in his luggage? Uh, Holmes says that, well... Elementary, Watson, uh, there are no tarantulas in South Africa. Uh, there are yes. tarantulas in South Africa. So that change from Canada really disrupts that particular part. Well, I think the idea is supposed to be like, oh, you know, the murderer intended people to think that the tarantula was in his luggage. But yeah, it... it... Like, to be fair, I don't know if that particular species of tarantula are in south africa but because when i did a cursory search it was a specific type of tarantula like a baboon something yeah it's a baboon spider yeah um which looks different than the tarantula we see on screen yeah they're like orange yeah yeah so you know but holmes just straight up says there's no tarantulas and it's like well there's no tarantulas in canada yeah that's why i live here (laughs) (laughs) yeah um but for the most part this is really good. I think the first thing to talk about is how good Peter Cushing is in this. He is oh, great in this. He's fantastic. He does an amazing job. Everyone does a really good job, but Cushing really takes it to a whole nother level because he just has such enthusiasm. Yeah, he just throws himself into the part. You yeah. can really tell. Um, I think his Sherlock is sort of a natural progression from the revamped version of Van Helsing that they had him play because they, they sort of turned Van Helsing in horror of Dracula into this like much more younger, active vampire hunter character. Who's going around like actively seeking out these things and destroying them. And I think that sort of like, yeah, very naturally moves into this version of Sherlock Holmes. I also really want to know if um, for preparing for Robert Downey Jr. to play Sherlock Holmes if he saw Peter Cushing's performance because there were elements that reminded me Robert Downey Jr. I think they're just hitting on some of the same notes that are in Holmes's essential character. Sure. So like the things that he really nails here, um, there's the the thing I think you're um, latching onto is Holmes's bipolar nature of uh, like very manic and then into very melancholy. No, actually, it was uh, how active he was, just like bounding across scenes and hopping over walls. Sure. Yeah, the Holmes of the Stories is is quite active. He like is a running across rooftops kind of guy. Sure, but I don't know. There was just it's probably just the enthusiasm because I know Robert Downey Jr. was like super enthused. Yeah, for sure. Um, yeah, I think Peter Cushing nails Holmes's bipolar nature. I think he nails Holmes's, you know, brilliance, his occasional rudeness. And also something that comes through really strongly in his version of Holmes, though, is Holmes's like genuine decency Mm -hmm. as a person like that Holmes is dedicated to fighting evil 
and is like heroic, which I think is something that's sort of gotten lessened in recent portrayals in favor of like amping up the idea that like he's, he's a savant. Yeah. And, and treating it more like he's after crime for the like mental challenge of it all, but he doesn't really care about morality. Yeah. That's definitely um, something that was a challenge in for me to watch in the Benedict Cumberbatch. Yeah. The Benedict Cumberbatch Sherlock Holmes claims he's a sociopath in that show. And that is inaccurate in the sense that sociopath is an outdated um, term, but also inaccurate in the sense that he does not actually meet the definition of what a psychopath is. Um, Well, you just said psychopath. I thought you said sociopath. So sociopath is an outdated term. There isn't now, nowadays, like modern psychologists don't recognize a uh, distinction between a sociopath and a psychopath. Oh, okay. Um, And Holmes does not, like even Benedict Cumberbatch's Sherlock does not match that definition, but it does serve as something of like a mission statement for that version Mm. of saying like, yeah, this version of Holmes like isn't, He doesn't give a fuck. Well, like he doesn't have human emotions, basically, right? It's Data. Yeah. Except Data does fucking care. Sorry, now I'm going to go on a rant. Data has genuine human decency as well. But yeah, like Peter Cushing, you, it comes across that Holmes is, is a good person. Yeah. And like knows how to interact with people. Mm. Like he might be a little rude or he might be a little like too direct but the way that Cushing's Holmes interacts with like that pastor for example right um just kind of like playing them a little bit yeah it's it's clear that like because sometimes you especially in modern portrayals of Sherlock Holmes you sometimes see a bit of like an idea that maybe he like doesn't understand like human social cues or something, which is nonsense because you need to be able to understand human social cues in order to understand crime. And so like, yeah, it's very clear that like with Cushing's homes, like he absolutely knows how to play into people and like how to act in social situations. He just like won't bother with niceties if there isn't a good reason Mm -hmm. to like, if he doesn't care, Um, he won't mince words with people like He won't pretend to like someone he doesn't like. But there are times in the movie where he's rude and then like later points out to Watson like, yeah, of course, I was being rude on purpose in order to like manipulate them to do this thing or whatever. Right. So um, speaking of Watson, I thought Andre Morel uh, acquitted himself quite well as Watson. Yeah, I would agree. He does a really good job. Yeah. There's not much like to Watson as a character because he's just um, like an audience surrogate. But I thought he was a good Watson. Mm-hmm. Uh, totally bought into him. Um, again, also very active, uh, like Sherlock in this movie. I think for me, the only real weak link in the cast is Marla Landy, who plays Cecile. Um, yeah, I feel like that could be chalked up to her being like a model. Mm-hmm. I don't know how much acting experience she has. Um it seems like she's just like playing the part. She doesn't quite understand how to play that double nature that her character is doing. Yeah. And so it, it makes her character like a little bit weirdly inexplicable. Like Cecile does one thing and says another a lot uh, through the movie. And it's very confusing. Um, and it never really comes together into like a whole. And I think that they should have just cast like, 
an actress, like a, a real British actress and not bothered with this roundabout thing of like giving her a new backstory because you cast this Italian model. Like I, I Well, it's Hammer, Ben. Yeah. We, we need the titties. Yeah, that's the thing, right? And it's like <laughs> this is this is a great example of like you can really sink something if you're just looking for the actress to be hot and not like caring about her ability to perform the role well. Sure. Um, Whenever you have a character who has to be doing that double thing, that's a real challenge because even then, like you have to think like, would my character, is it a right choice to show that double nature in this scene to kind of tease to the audience? Like it's pretty complex. Yeah. Marla Landy here basically just plays whatever's on the page. Yeah. She's not bad at playing what's on the page, but like, it's just everything at face value as written. And it means that her character doesn't like the different pieces of her character don't add up to a whole. Which is unfortunate because she is pretty much our only female character. We do have the female servant, uh, Mrs. Barrymore, um, but that's it. Yeah, we don't even get um, Mrs. Hudson, uh, Holmes and Watson's long-suffering landlady. Uh, But yeah, darn shame that there weren't more of these because like Cushing is great as Holmes. Mm -hmm. I want to watch that 1968 TV show now, but as you pointed out in the context setting, that's like 10 years later. Um, so like Cushing's in his fifties when he does that show. And so he's not going to be as active and jumping around and spry as he is in this. Like, I want to see this Cushing throwing himself enthusiastically into this role, like more times. Like I'm really bummed that there aren't more of these. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Everything in this picture really comes together. The music is really fantastic. They do borrow some themes from Dracula where appropriate, but there's nothing that is egregious or inexplicable. Um, the other thing they borrow from Dracula are sets. Yes, Baskerville Hall is very clearly just Castle Dracula, but they have done a good job redecorating it. They've done a fantastic job. Yeah. Um, I don't think... It would be obvious to a contemporary audience. No, yeah. It it wouldn't be obvious that like Baskerville Hall doesn't look like it looks fine. Like it looks like how you want it to look. Um, I think it's just clear to us because we, you know, have seen Hammer of Dracula so recently. Exactly. um, In a, in, you know. You did say Hammer of Dracula though. Oh, sorry. Horror of Dracula. (laughs) Which makes me imagine Dracula as a Vulcan. Mm, Right. (laughs) Just hammering. Yeah. Um, yeah, I, all of that as well, between the sets, the music, the cinematography, it all culminates into what I think is a great example of a gothic movie. I think I can see why this didn't succeed, though. Yes. You have all this buildup around the hound in the advertising, like the hound is the poster, right? And the movie just doesn't deliver on how it was advertising itself they really should have shown more of the hound i think throughout the picture during the attacks like we don't actually see the hound until the very end of the movie mm-hmm. but there are two attacks from the hound earlier in that there's um selden Hugo and selden yeah and i get the idea of like you don't show anything and then you show at the end but that doesn't work here for me and i'll get to why in a second i kind of wish for the hugo part they had shown it as like actually a menacing 
uh, demonic hound because that's how the rest of the legend is kind of played up. Yeah, absolutely. It makes sense to me that they start with showing you the legend. Like in the actual novel, it's just like a thing said in dialogue, right? Like Mortimer just explains it. But, you know, we're on film, so we want to show, not tell. But also if we're wanting to like push the horror elements of the story, like that's a great way to do it by starting with that. And they also really pump up Hugo and his like badness because I think in the novel it's just like yeah there's like a lot he's of not a good guy no no but he's no, no. not this level well I think it's just very vague it's just like yeah there was an incident where he like kidnapped a girl and killed her yeah. and it's like that's all you're left with here it's like oh yeah he was going to gang rape uh, a servant's daughter with his like buddies at like a drinking party and, and when this she... is after whatever else he did to lock her up yes and uh he tortures the servant in front of the fire and that's what kills him yeah and then like when she gets away he you know organizes a hunting party across the moors for like they really amp that up and i think that was a good idea but i think that they should have shown us like the bodies with the throats torn out, you know, we should have, you know, Selden Holmes talks about how Selden's body was like mutilated and it's like, come on guys, this is a hammer film. Like show us the mutilation then. Like, I think hammer was thinking like, well, you know, it's Sherlock Holmes, not a horror movie. And it's like, but, but everyone else is sitting there going, but this is a hammer movie. Right. And they advertised it like it was horror. So they need to be delivering on that more. I think we could have seen the hound in the attack on Hugo in the attack on Selden. And that sort of brings me to the hound itself, which is that like, finally, after all this buildup, the hound itself is super disappointing. Yeah. It's a big dog who has like fur on his face. Uh, and then when we see the dead dog, it's so clearly just like a stuffy, like a little stuffed animal, well, yeah. a big stuffed animal, I guess. But, but also like, so the dog is in a mask. And, they, you know, Holmes pulls off the mask and he's like, they made this mask to make the dog look um, Mr. You know, McGillicuddy. Yeah. <laughs> they made this mask to make the dog look scarier. The thing is, is like... It's a bad mask. Well, it's a bad mask, yes, but it also just like looks exactly like the dog's face. Yeah. Like it just makes the dog look like he has big head mode on in like Goldeneye. <laughs> like he's just wearing... It makes him look like he has mange, really. Yeah, that's, that's really it. it. Yeah, it, it basically makes him... He his head looks bigger and shaggier, and that's it. He's wearing a mask of his own face. It's really ineffective. Um, <laughs> a, mas a mask of his own face could have been so terrifying. <laughs> <laughs> the hound in the book was like a beast of hell. So what they did to the dog they starved in the book to attack the Baskervilles is they had um, it had glowing eyes and teeth because they had painted it with phosphorus. You know, I need to see a big black dog with glowing eyes, guys. Yeah, like I really... Like do would... it with animation or something. <laughs> animation, I, I really wish we could have seen something like when the dog first comes out to attack Sir Henry uh, and seeing this like demonic dog, but then after it's defeated, it's clearly like, or even as Holmes and Watson are dealing with it, you slowly start to realize, no, it's just a dog. Mm-hmm. Kind of like uh, 
what movie did we watch with the rock was it hercules where like yeah he's like leading these people against uh an army that are supposed to be centaurs and he's like they're not going to be centaurs and then like they look up on the hill and they see what looks like a centaur but it's actually just the trick of the light and it's just a dude on a horse yeah I, w- I would want a moment like that to deal with um, the question of, is this a demonic hound or not? Sure. Yeah. I think the problem is, is that the combination of not seeing the hound at all mm. in the earlier attacks and then the final reveal being a letdown makes this really disappointing if your marketing campaign is based around like this demonic hound as the monster in a horror movie, right? Absolutely. So ultimately that failure doesn't make this any less of a Sherlock Holmes movie, but it does make it less of a horror movie. And that explains the audience disappointment. I completely agree. I also think like they never meant for this to be horror. No. Like the marketing department did it, but production wise, like definitely gothic, but not a horror movie. Yeah. Um, it's a mystery movie. It's a Sherlock Holmes movie. Yeah. Um, which I think like, would have meant that people would have been disappointed regardless. Yeah, I think they needed to play up the violence and play up the hound more and give us more of the hound and, and invest more in like a good special effect for the hound um, in order for this to really hit. Because I would have loved to have seen like if this had worked, you know, if they had really put effort into the hound as a monster and given us more of it throughout the movie and shown us more of the violence so that this was kind of like half Sherlock Holmes, half horror. If this had then succeeded, I think they could have gotten away with doing further Sherlock Holmes movies after this with Cushing that were less horror, right? Yeah, I would agree. But just using this as like kind of the branching off point from what they were already doing. But it's it's not, it, it's it's definitely similar enough to Hammer's other horror stuff to like, fall into horror adjacent territory but it's not close enough for it to have i think worked in the way they wanted it to yeah i would agree definitely part of the hammer oeuvre um to use a fancy french word um because it it fits completely in line with hammer's um reinterpretation of the gothic Mm -hmm. um i also think this is a really fantastic adaptation of a novel. Like if you want to look at a good adaptation of how to take a novel and put it to film, I would point to this movie. I would point to Hammer's Frankenstein. Like Hammer has shown themselves to be very good at this. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I think this was, um, I think this was really good. Um, if we were just ranking Hammer movies, right? If this was just a Hammer movie podcast and not a horror movie podcast, like where does this sit for you next to the other Hammer movies? The only other Hammer movies coming to mind right now are Dracula and Frankenstein. Mm -hmm. Like the first Frankenstein, I guess there was the sequel. Mm -hmm. And are we counting Abominable Snowman? Yeah, so like Quatermass, Quatermass 2, X the Unknown, Abominable Snowman, uh, Curse of Frankenstein, Horror of Dracula, Revenge of Frankenstein. I would definitely put Hammer's Hound of the Baskervilles above majority of those items, but not dracula and not the first frankenstein and i would have to think about abominable snowman yeah i think for me this is on the same tier as dracula and frankenstein Mm -hmm. um i don't know like internally what the ranking of those three 
looks like, mm. but I think that those three are like a uh, can stand shoulder to shoulder with pride. Absolutely. Speaking of shoulders, damn young Christopher Lee. <laughs> damn. Yeah, he he gets to um, you know, really act in this. Not that he wasn't acting in the others, but like he really gets to show a, much more of his range than what we've been able to see in the yeah, past. Yeah, for sure. Like after being the monster in Curse of Frankenstein and then like Dracula's basically got like two modes in Horror of Dracula. There's like charming and uh oh shit um and those are like the two the two modes so yeah he gets to do a lot more here he also gets to not be a villain uh yeah. which is rare just in like the overall christopher lee filmography right like it's i think a lot of people of our generation are used to old man christopher lee and we're used to villain christopher lee and this is like young romantic lead christopher lee which you don't get that often no, um, he does a fantastic job. There's a moment, you know, where the tarantula is up on his shoulder and, and you said that he has arachnophobia. So like kudos to him for handling that. But also you can really see the fear in his mm-hmm. face and the way mm-hmm. he's acting. Yeah, he the way he del- delivers some of the lines are just um, Mr. Lee. Why did you have to say it like that? Sarah's Sarah's like <laughs> blushing right now guys uh for for those at home like the no, temperature that, is rising sunburn. that's not in the blush. Room. she's she's having to fan herself <laughs> to keep herself from passing out um he is very tall he is very tall uh and it's funny because he's like standing next to peter crushing crushing is having to look up and crushing's tall himself yeah like he's not six feet but he's, he's pretty yeah, much yeah crushing is 5'11 but Christopher Lee is six foot five. Yeah. There, there are times where like he seems too big for the sets. Yeah. There's one moment where like, I swear he was going to like hit his head on the chandelier, but he just under. Yeah. Probably during a rehearsal, he knocked it and the production designer or someone had to go in and adjust the chandelier. But yeah, no kidding. Oh yeah. Great, great actor. Rest in peace, Christopher Lee. So yeah, this was a lot of fun, Sarah. Yes. Um, if you, listener, have enjoyed this, then uh, stay tuned because we're back to our regularly scheduled programming next week. But if you want to have a say in what horror-adjacent movie we cover next, you can head to our Patreon at patreon.com slash Podcast and vote in the monthly poll. That's right. Uh, you can sign up to become a patron of the night for as little as a dollar a month. Patrons at the $5 and $10 levels get access to regular bonus content, and patrons at all levels get to vote in the monthly horror-adjacent poll. Um, this next poll has a theme about houses. Oh, Because yeah. we get possession of Castle Scream scene yes. next month. Yes, that's right. July so. is house month for us house house um house is not an option house is full horror yeah we'll we'll get to it it's gonna take a while but we'll get there i'm super excited um cool well um thank you for listening and i hope you are staying safe and well creatures of the night bye bye bye